This is the Memoir 44 podcast. It's for fans of the Days of Wonder game called Memoir 44. This podcast home on the web is at memoir44podcast.blogspot.com. Get in touch by sending an email to memoir44podcast at gmail.com. Hello, and welcome to the first of the Memoir 44 podcasts. I'm FNH, also known as FNH1 at BoardGameGeek. As this is the first, the start, the very beginning of this little enterprise, it seems appropriate to hear a speech given by Eisenhower to the whole of Europe on D-Day. Go for it, Eisenhower. People of Western Europe, a landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. This landing is part of the concerted United Nations plan for the liberation of Europe, made in conjunction with our great Russian allies. I have this message for all of you. Although the initial assault may not have been made in your own country, the hour of your liberation is approaching. All patriots, men and women, young and old, have a part to play in the achievement of final victory. To members of resistance movements, whether led by nationals or by outside leaders, I say, follow the instructions you have received. To patriots who are not members of organized resistance groups, I say, continue your passive resistance, but do not needlessly endanger your lives. Wait until I give you the signal to rise and strike the enemy. The day will come when I shall need your united strength. Until that day, I call on you for the hard task of discipline and restraint. Citizens of France, I am proud to have again under my command the gallant forces of France. Fighting beside their allies, they will play a worthy part in the liberation of their homeland. Because the initial landing has been made on the soil of your country, I repeat to you with even greater emphasis my message to the peoples of other occupied countries in Western Europe. Follow the instructions of your leaders. A premature uprising of all Frenchmen may prevent you from being of maximum help to your country in the critical hour. Be patient. Prepare. As Supreme Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force, there is imposed on me the duty and responsibility of taking all measures necessary to the prosecution of the war. Prompt and willing obedience to the orders that I shall issue is essential. Effective civil administration of France must be provided by Frenchmen. All persons must continue in their present duties unless otherwise instructed. Those who have made common cause with the enemy and so betrayed their country will be removed. When France is liberated from her oppressors, you yourselves will choose your representatives and the government under which you wish to live. In the course of this campaign for the final defeat of the enemy, you may sustain further loss and damage. Tragic though they may be, they are part of the price of victory. I assure you that I shall do all in my power to mitigate your hardships. I know that I can count on your steadfastness now no less than in the past. The heroic deeds of Frenchmen who have continued the struggle against the Nazis and their Vichy satellites 
in France and throughout the French Empire have been an example and an inspiration to all of us. This landing is but the opening phase of the campaign in Western Europe. Great battles lie ahead. I call upon all who love freedom to stand with us now. Keep your faith staunch. Our arms are resolute. Together we shall achieve victory. And so, with that heady set of instructions in mind, and the very important phrase, together we shall achieve victory, let's get on with the show. Today I'm going to focus on the first scenario that comes in the box when you buy your copy of Memoir 44. The first scenario is called Pegasus Bridge, and it's based on an event that took place on D-Day, June 6th, 1944. I thought I'd do some hunting around the web and see what I could find out about the actual fight that took place at Pegasus Bridge. I found the following description of the Pegasus Bridge action at www.army.mod.uk. Don't worry, I'll put a link to that into the show notes. I'll now read from that article, but please forgive my pronunciation of some of these names. Incidentally, if you do know how to pronounce something that I get wrong, please feel free to send me an MP3 of how to pronounce it, because I'd like to get it right in future. Here we go. Pegasus was the name given to a bridge over the Cairn Canal, near the town of Ostraham. The bridge, also known as the Benoville Bridge, after the neighbouring village, was a major objective of the British 6th Airborne Division, which was landed by glider near it during the Normandy invasion on the 5th, 6th of June, 1944. It was given the permanent name of Pegasus Bridge in honour of the operation, and is in fact a battle honour of the rifles. The main objective of capturing Pegasus Bridge was to secure the eastern flank of the invasion, preventing a counter-attack from rolling up the entire invasion force. The eastern flank was defined by the River Orne and the Cairn Canal, and Pegasus Bridge, together with the neighbouring Horsa Bridge, were the only bridges in the immediate vicinity of the invasion area to cross these features, and so their successful capture would secure the eastern flank. The initial assault was carried out by 181 soldiers, four platoons of D and two of B companies of the 2nd Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry, in six horse gliders, and they were led by Major John Howard. Three of the gliders landed within 50 metres of Pegasus at 16 minutes past midnight on June the 6th. The first, glider number 92, containing Major Howard and number one platoon of the coup de main force, landed heavily and came to an abrupt halt when, as had been planned during the briefings, it pushed its nose through and penetrated the first belt of barbed wire around the bridge. The force of this sudden halt catapulted both glider pilots through the cockpit screen and rendered them together with all of the passengers unconscious. Within a few seconds, however, the men had fully regained their senses and became aware that all around them was quiet. The noise of the crash had not alerted the Germans at the bridge, a mere fifty yards from where the glider had come to rest. If it had, then the fate of the coup de main might have been decided in seconds. Fortunately, the guards had disregarded the noise that they heard, as that of falling debris from a damaged Allied bomber. Number one platoon were quickly out of the glider and instinctively went about the tasks for which they had been training for months. Several men knocked out a machine-gun position, whilst the majority of the platoon, led by Lieutenant Den Brotheridge, rushed over the bridge to capture the other side, firing from the hip and lobbing grenades as they charged. 
Once across the western side of the bridge, Brotheridge dropped a grenade into another machine-gun position, but was shot through the neck in the next instant. Mortally wounded, Lieutenant Den Brotheridge was the first British soldier to die as a result of enemy action on D-Day. As number one platoon had begun their attack, number two platoon landed safely in the second glider and immediately moved up to help clear the enemy away from the eastern end of the bridge. Number three platoon were not so lucky as an abrupt halt to their landing had torn the fuselage from the glider and left a dozen men trapped in the wreckage, one drowned in the adjacent lake. Their commander, Lieutenant Smith, was injured as a result of the crash and was hurt further by a grenade-wielding German whom he encountered and killed several minutes later. However, he continued to lead his men and helped to secure the western side of the bridge. Throughout all of these actions, the accompanying Royal Engineers of the 249th Field Company had been ignoring the enemy fire directed at them as they climbed all over the bridge looking for wires to cut and detonation devices to remove. The Germans had clearly prepared the bridge for demolition, but fearing an accidental explosion or sabotage by the French resistance, the charges had not been placed. After overcoming the initial shock of this sudden and violent assault, the German garrison fought back, but defeat was inevitable, and many fled the scene. As the firing died down, Major John Howard knew that, for now at least, Benoville Bridge was safely in British hands. A few hundred yards to the east, spanning the River Orne, stands another bridge known as Horser Bridge or Ranville Bridge, after the nearby village. This was the second objective of the Ox and Bucks, and was assaulted by the remaining three gliders, one of which landed miles from the bridge, and so played no part in the raid. The other two gliders, however, landed on target. Number six platoon landed first, and proceeded to attack the bridge. But by this time the sound of fighting in the direction of Pegasus Bridge had alerted the German garrison. Fortunately, their defensive capability amounted to a single machine-gun position, the crew of which fired a few ineffective rounds at the British as they came into view, and then fled in the face of Number 6 Platoon's accurate mortar fire. A few minutes later, Number 5 Platoon, who had landed 700 yards short of the landing zone, arrived at the bridge, unaware that it had already been taken. They ran across it, expecting to be fired upon at any moment, but in the gloom before them there appeared the unmistakable shape of Lieutenant Fox, the commander of Number 6 Platoon. So ended the brief struggle for Horser Bridge. The coup de main raid had been a complete success with comparatively few casualties. Both bridges had been taken in just ten minutes. The landing of the gliders onto these very small landing zones in the dark was later hailed by Air Vice Marshal Leigh Mallory, the commander of Allied forces during the invasion, as one of the most outstanding flying achievements of the war. Most of the 6th Airborne landed by parachute 40 minutes later, one of their many tasks being to reinforce the defenders of the bridges, which was successfully held against little enemy interference by Major Howard's men for two hours before the first troops arrived. The role of the 7th Somerset Light Infantry Battalion, the Parachute Regiment, is frequently overlooked in this regard, for they were the relieving force who were to bear the brunt of the German counter-attacks to the west of the Cairn Canal throughout the 6th of June 1944. They had dropped some 600 strong, however, due to a confused and scattered drop, Less than half of these had assembled at the rendezvous point, and all of their support weaponry, mortars and medium machine guns were missing. Nevertheless, the battalion distinguished itself in holding a wide bridgehead around Pegasus Bridge against constant enemy probing attacks, frequently supported by armoured vehicles. In particular, their A Company, based in the nearby village of Benoville, 
suffered the most severe fighting and were eventually cut off from the remainder of the 7th Battalion. The first relief was from 6th Commando, led by the commander of the 1st Special Services Brigade, Lord Lovett, who arrived to the sound of the Scottish bagpipes, played by a 21-year-old mad piper, Private Bill Millen. The arrival of these troops, however, did little to help the defence of the bridges, as their orders were to cross over the bridge and help secure terrain to the east of the Cairn Canal, which the remainder of the 6th Airborne Division was currently holding. The remnants of the 7th Battalion A Company continued to hold out until 9.15pm on the 6th of June, when British infantry in the form of the 2nd Battalion, the Royal Warwickshires, arrived from the invasion beaches and secured Benneville and so to allow the evacuation of A Company's many wounded. The remaining twenty men of the company, who were still able to fight, followed at around midnight. End of quote. Next up, I have a memoir written by Private Eric Woods, who took part in this operation. This can be found at the BBC's World War II People's War Archive. As with the previous item, I'll put a link to that into the show notes. It was almost 11 p.m. on the 5th of June, 1944, as quietly we climbed into the horser glider that was hitched to the Halifax tow plane, ready to drag us into the sky. Previously in training, boarding the glider had been a common event with quips and wisecracks from your mates, but this time it was different. Each man clambered aboard, and hardly a word was spoken. We knew that our practice was over, and that this was the real thing. All must have felt the burn of adrenaline and excitement as at midnight we crossed the French coast and the tension rose further as with a jolt the glider separated from the Halifax and we commenced our glide down to French soil. Hardly any glider lands without a mishap and in unknown territory the chances of a rough landing were high. Our pilot was great in bringing it down in the darkness of the night and we hit the ground with a mighty thump and slithered to a halt no one was injured. I am still not sure which glider landed first, but I was always under the impression that it was ours. Our platoon, commanded by Lieutenant Fox, quickly made our way across the fields to our target, a bridge that crossed the River Orne. It was, fortunately, very lightly defended, the main episode being when a phosphorus bomb was hurled at German defenders who were attempting to man a gun position. The situation was quiet almost as quickly as it started. It was all over in approximately fifteen minutes. Guards were left at the bridge, and the remainder of the platoon was redirected across the fields to join Major Howard's team at Pegasus Bridge. One of my most vivid memories on reaching the bridge was finding myself lying alongside Sergeant Thornton, who was armed with a Nat anti-tank weapon. On the road on the opposite side of the bridge, was a junction, and from this emerged three French tanks which had been commandeered by the Germans. Sergeant Thornton, nicknamed Wagger, sighted the gnat and fired, hitting the foremost tank broadside on. It must have been a direct hit on the tank's magazine, for there was an almighty explosion, and ammunition continued to explode for more than an hour afterwards. The two remaining tanks quickly retreated from whence they came. Another of my memories was with a German motorcyclist who had been blown off his machine. His legs were severely injured. A German officer was also at the scene and immediately surrendered to me, passing over his revolver. He was most concerned about his wounded colleague and in a very good English asked for medical assistance, saying, 
I don't think you would want to leave one of your mates in this condition, would you? I assured him that I would return to his comrade with medical assistance as soon as he had accompanied me to surrender himself to a British officer, which he did. I returned, and a corporal helped me to get the wretched man to the medics. The following morning, while on guard with a colleague, I asked, Did the Germans play the magpipes? To which he replied, I don't think so. I said that I thought I could hear bagpipes. Confirmation came a few minutes later. The sounds of the pipes grew louder as the green berets of the Lord Lovett's force advanced towards Pegasus Bridge. End of quote. So, in the light of this research, let's take a look at the scenario from the game. The three main features are the Cairn Canal, which runs up the left-hand side of the board, the River Orne, which runs up the right-hand side, and an impassable pond that's in the middle of the board. We also have a number of town sections. These are Laporte, which is in the top left. We have another few buildings next to Pegasus Bridge itself, and we have the little village of Benneville. All of these town segments appear to the left of the Cairn Canal. Pegasus Bridge itself is going to be quite heavily defended. There's a sandbagged hex right in front of it, and four barbed wire hexes in front of that. The bridge over the Orne is undefended with regards to sandbags or barbed wire. The placements of the troops for this scenario is very interesting. The Axis forces themselves appear on both sides of Pegasus Bridge. Two units are next to the sandbags and behind the barbed wire. A third unit is on the far side of the Cairn Canal, and that's in buildings. There's also a fourth unit on that side of the map, but that's in the far top left corner, and that will take a few turns to get into action regardless. Over on the right side of the map, we have one Axis unit which is on the right of the Orne Bridge, away from any Allied units, and but it can in a single turn move up and onto the bridge. There's also another unit which is on the Allied side of the Orne River, but again it's far to the north and a couple of turns away from any contact with the Allied troops. They've made a nice attempt at replicating actual history with the placement of the Allied troops as well. Three units, including Howard himself apparently, are placed right next to the barbed wire that surrounds Pegasus Bridge. And my assumption for these is that they represent the first glider that landed on and through the barbed wire that protected the bridge. There are three that are to the south of the pond, and it's going to take you at least three turns to get them into action. And there are three more Allied units which are just next to the Orne River, but right on the south of the board. I've played through this scenario a number of times with different people, and there are a number of different strategies you can try, and a few of the ones I've tried have turned out to be abject failures. It's interesting to note that you start the game with three Allied units on the left, six in the centre, and none whatsoever on the right. So if you start with only right cards, you're in real trouble. One of the first things I always try to do is get some units out of the centre and into the right. I want to distribute my forces, so I have a better chance of having a good card every turn. Fortunately, it's only three or four hexes to get to the Orne Bridge, and there's no actual defences around there, and, as a bonus, there's a victory medal on that bridge. As long as you have a unit on there, you're going to get a medal. So that seems to me like your first objective. It's going to be easy to get. There are only two units on that side of the board to defend it, and you've got three units relatively close. Rushing three units to that bridge seems to me like a good idea. 
There are only two to defend it. However, if the Axis player is up on his ball game, he's probably not going to defend the bridge itself, but will rather try and occupy the woods to the north and the south of it. Now, these woods are two hexes away, but that means you're easily going to have two dice attacking every turn on any units that are on that bridge. So, for the Allied player, you've really got to move up to that bridge and take out those Axis units, because you can't sit on that bridge and keep that medal without an attrition game wearing you down first. For the Allies, the simplicity of taking the Orm Bridge is really balanced by the difficulty you're going to suffer with trying to take Pegasus Bridge itself. You have three units right up next to the barbed wire, but behind that barbed wire is a sandbagged couple of units, so you're really going to struggle to get through there. If you move into the wire, you're down a die. If you're firing into the sandbags, you're down another die, so it's very difficult. Fortunately, just outside the barbed wire on the Allied side is one woods hex. So if you can get a unit into that woods hex, you're then able to fire across the barbed wire at the people in the sandbags, and you both stand an even Stevens chance of wiping the other one out. The problem for the Allied player with doing this is that there are actually two Axis units behind the barbed wire that can attack the woods hex. So again, you will start to lose on the attrition basis there, but at least it evens the odds a bit. Another alternative for trying to attack these units behind the wire is to rather go round the pond in the centre of the board and head north and then go round the top of the barbed wire through the woods and attack the Axis troops behind the barbed wire without having to cross it. This takes an awful long time and will use up an awful lot of cards in the central region. This was an absolute disaster for me. I lost troops very quickly while doing this. I wouldn't recommend that. You're actually probably better off trying to win an attrition war from the woods or perhaps even that direct assault. However, the direct assault is going to be very bloody and you have to watch out because this is only a four medal win. That can go very quickly. You've got three units up there tangled up in the barbed wire and you're probably going to lose some troops as you're trying to take the Ormbridge as well. So you really need to play carefully and think ahead as the Allied player. As the Axis player in this game, you've got it quite easy. You have two units behind barbed wire, one of them is sandbagged. You have another unit in reserve just across the bridge and a fourth one which is up near Laporte and can come down and help the defence. The obvious tactic, and one I would suggest you stick with, is to stay behind the barbed wire. But what you can do is bring the unit down from the Laporte village and keep the one that's behind Pegasus Bridge and move them down next to the river so that while Howard and the three units with him are trying to get through the barbed wire, you can take pot shots at them across the river. Now he's going to be suffering because he's in the barbed wire, or at least trying to cross the barbed wire, and you won't be because you're going to be in the clear. Of course, the other option I mentioned for the Allies was that they could come round the pond and then head north and try and come round the end of your barbed wire. If it looks like the Allied player is doing that, then as an Axis player, you need to move one of your two units that are on the right-hand side of the Cairn Canal up into the woods so that you can try and block that manoeuvre. When you do that, you can also bring the unit from behind the canal across the bridge and put that behind the barbed wire to stop anybody leaping across there. My final hint for the Axis player is don't put a unit on top of Pegasus Bridge if you've got a unit in the sandbags and the hex immediately behind it. And the reason for this is simply that if two flags are scored against those in the sandbags, they've got nowhere to retreat and you're going to lose another unit. In summary, 
this scenario is the first one in the book it's the first one you're supposed to play and it is a training scenario there's nothing but infantry there's no artillery there's no armor it's very simple i think as a first scenario it succeeds in a number of ways first of all it is simple it is easy to learn there are just enough obstacles and terrain in there to keep you interested it's not a flat open ground which could be very boring and on another side of it it's very interesting that this was the first action of d-day where people got into combat and it's the first scenario in the book that's a very nice touch so that's all i've got on the pegasus bridge scenario i thought it might be interesting for the podcast to include an on this day segment during the war so if i turn to my big book of wartime events for 1944 Let's see what happened on and around the day that I'm recording, which is November the 15th. Okay, it says here, on the 14th, the British Second Army attacks a German pocket near Mars, M-A-A-S. Also on the home front in Britain, Sir Trafford Lane Mallory, an Allied air commander, was presumed killed in an air crash. The wreckage was actually discovered in the French Alps on June 4th, 1945, a year later. Wednesday the 15th, on the Western Front, the French First Army was attacking the Jura Mountains. Over in the States, senior army and fleet commanders were promoted to General of the Army and Admiral of the Fleet, and identified by five stars. So that's when the five-star general thing came in. Okay, on to November the 16th. Okay, it was a big day in the air war, apparently. Over 10,000 tonnes of bombs were dropped from 1,200 of the 8th Air Force planes and 1,100 Lancasters and Halifaxes, which obliterated the fortified towns of Duren, Jillich and Heisenberg, and the defence line west of Duren. On the Western Front, the US 1st and 9th Armies launched their great attack into the Ruhr Plain. Sounds like a lot of action was going on then. Well, I'll close my big book now. Now we're into the end show, the roundup. Firstly, if you have any comments about this show, please feel free to get in touch and let me know what you think. Any suggestions are welcome. If you think you'd like to contribute to the show, then please do get in touch. I'd love to get some other voices on this podcast. Next time I plan to do a special on the second scenario that comes in the base game. If you have any opinion or strategy guides for that, then please record them and send them to me. I'd love to play them. You can email me at memoir44podcast at gmail.com. I'm also going to be setting up a guild for this podcast, so you could perhaps have a look for that. As soon as I get that set up, I'll put a link to it into the show notes. And that's all there is for today. FNH, signing off. From where I am, standing between the two pilots of this glider, I can see the navigation lights of the tug in front of us, and off to left and right, the navigation lights of other tugs and other gliders bound on the same mission. Circling above from time to time, I can see the lights of the fighter screen, which is protecting us. And looking back down the glider, there are seated, although I can't see them in the half-light, officers and men, all laden up with equipment so heavily that they can barely walk but they've got to carry with them the means by which they can fight the moment they land.